Welcome, everybody, to Adventures in DevOps. I am your host for the day, Jonathan Hall, and your co-hosts today are Jillian Rowe and Will Button. What's going on, everybody? And our special guest for this episode is Mr. Eric Tang. Hi, Eric. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for listening to our us ramble about DevOps. I think we're going to have an interesting conversation today. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Eric, why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are and your background, and then we'll dive into the topic. Sure. My name is Eric Tank. Thank you for having me on first off. I've been programming for about 20 some odd years professionally, definitely 20 years. I'm currently a Ticketmaster as lead engineer, working in a group where we are caretaking of legacy code or code that everybody else hates and wants to get rid of, but no one actually wants to stand up and get rid of it. So we get to figure out what it does, keep it alive and keep it going. And that's kind of where we roll into the topic of that. I just want to get people to build more or build code more responsibly. That's going to be responsibly. Oof. I, I know. Sorry, Asking for responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That sounds like the next guy's problem. I don't know. If that's something I want to advertise necessarily. But so, so before we start down that road, I'm curious. You've been developing for 25 years. I'm curious. What was your first programming language? Well, not professionally. The first one, it was basic on. Yeah. Oh, what was that? Commodore 64. I had to, I, I wasn't doing too well in nice. Spanish, so I wrote myself a flashcard program and it helped me pass. Oh, that's awesome. But uh, Great. my first actually paid language as a paid programmer was a language called Jam, which is like the, I, I, if you were to describe it, it's like Visual Basic Uncle, the uncle we don't talk about. It's the same kind of idea, <laughs> but... It was much, much worse. It's, uh, let's put it this way. If you put too much code into a widget, it wouldn't tell you that you ran over the buffer, but you went to save it and it would just dump everything. It was, it was very exciting coding. But after that, uh, my <laughs> right favorite, on. my, uh, the primary language has always been Perl. I do run the, the Phoenix Perlmongers group. Well, run is kind of in quotes since oh. we haven't really met since the pandemic, but uh, it's, uh, Perl is my favorite. I will work on any programming language, but if you need it fast and cobbled together, it will be in Perl. Okay, 
Nice. So my first paid language is Perl. I did Perl for about 10 years. Oh, nice. I haven't touched it in a while. I, I don't really miss it very much, but, uh. Mine too. <laughs> so I, I just pulled up Jam programming language and funny, the website says <laughs> some features are not yet implemented. Only you, Jonathan. The rest of us love it. <laughs> some things are not yet implemented. <laughs> Well, it's, it's only been 25 years. You got to cut them some slack. What are they waiting for? <laughs> anyway, fun reminiscing. Got to marinate a bit. Oh, yeah. So you're interested in writing code responsibly. I, I don't know. That seems seems so out of character for this this program, but we'll we'll run with it anyway. Well, it's good. It's, I, I ran into a wall, so I was hoping we can break through it. Okay. Let's see. It's going to be a DevOps therapy session. This episode is. Yes. So why don't why don't you walk us through it? What what are your what are your thoughts on this? Because I'm sitting here thinking, you know, that sounds like (laughs) (laughs) well, (laughs) funny enough, we are going to get to it's it's a me problem, and I'm trying to figure out how to make it not a me problem. I really want it to be a you problem. And as I as I've been kind of going through it, one of the ideas that I'm thinking of, and I may be totally wrong because I'm not a psychology major. But as, I, as I'm writing this, it's like, wow, this is kind of like destroying the ego. I got to destroy my programmer self-pride and get over myself. But basically, the, the topic is, and I came to the topic first, was build for deprecation. And like, what am I trying to solve with that? The idea is, unless I want to be married to the code, and live with the code. And if the code breaks at 2 a.m. and I'm up at the code, you know, with the code, I need to be able to write it responsibly. And we have a lot of ideas behind that. We have TDD, BDD, we have DDD, the domain design driven design, and like the good old uh, software development lifecycle. But none of them, I, I feel, or I feel like we we're trying to use all of them, but we still end up with crappy code. And I'm not saying crappy code in the sense of it doesn't perform well. I mean, it performs probably extremely well. It's probably crafted ideally and it meets all the expectations of the client. The problem is that we can't go away from the code or it's written in such a way that no one else can support it. So the idea behind this is like if you're writing and you're building something and you have the idea of, I want to deprecate this, then hopefully you'll build something that you can hand off to someone. And it sounds a, a little bit like a dumb idea, primarily because, well, if you're building something to simply deprecate it, then why are you building it? Why don't you build something better? And I think that's the biggest problem that we run into as, as software engineers is that we, we build something and we think this is the grandest idea ever. It will never be replaced. And six months later, someone's calling it legacy and trying to get rid of it. And you're <laughs> trying to stop them. And as engineers, I, I definitely, it comes back to me. I, I definitely have started learning in the last two to three years that I don't speak business very well. I don't speak project very well. So I don't know how to tell them like, no, 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 we need to slow down. We need to do this with them. And this came through, I mean, unfortunately from COVID, this came into, I got a great example of it is basically an entire department was removed because, hey, the software worked. Why do we need a department to run the software? And then they realized, oh, well, now we're starting to get clients again for the software and the software is not working too well. So they brought me in as a lead uh, with another, with a, a team, brand new team. We've never seen this code before. No documentation, testing that didn't really work. So no testing, no way to understand. And I basically had to go to management and says, we're not doing anything. Unfortunately, COVID was still happening and clients weren't using it yet. So it gave us the time to stop for six months and we simply documented. And the funny thing happened is this, uh, this piece of software always had some problems, but by documenting it and going through it very 
in a very regimented manner, we started making little tweaks. And at the end of six months, we hadn't really done anything big, but now we had a stable piece of software simply because we stopped and we documented it. So that's kind of the first step is you got to document what you're doing. You have a problem, so you document it. You make it clear, what does this code do? And the purpose of that documentation then is if a new person comes in, they can read it. Or if you want to deprecate it, you can give this to the next team and says, this is what it does. This is the minimum of what you need to replace. So, uh, you know, the next part of that, you know, in this, we get through like BDD and all that. We feel like we get documentation, but really as coders, we just don't do it. I mean, the number of times I've gone into repos and the readme is blank. And I'm sure that the original designer basically said, hey, the name will tell you what it does. I'm telling you. If you don't have the context, the name doesn't tell you anything. So the next step, and this is kind of where it gets a little bit more insistent because this is not, again, not even considered as testing. So you write a piece of code. Well, are you testing it? And yeah, we're testing. We do test-driven development. And the funny thing is that if you really look, no, you're not. Your coders, they're coding it, and then they're going to shove some tests up the tail end, you know, in the backside, trying to make it look like that's what they did. <laughs> and really, TDD does work well if you already have the ecosystem in place. You have a robust code that you know what it does, you know what it's supposed to do, and you have a test system. And now you've run into an edge case. Now you can write that test ahead of time. You can see it breaking. You can track down where the break is, fix it, and your test will validate. That's where it works best. So testing is important. Again, usually missing. And then monitoring. I mean, uh, everything that I've mentioned so far, even the design software development lifecycle, doesn't really talk about monitoring. It's nothing better than knowing that your software doesn't work because your clients told you. And you, you always want to get ahead of that. The problem here is that you try to tell that to a business person and they're going to say, I don't understand. I just need the software to work. And why do we need tests? Why do we need monitoring? Why do we need this? And a great example was, and this is, again, where I feel like it's my fault. I need to learn how to communicate better. We had a product and it was rendering data and some data on the edges, which wasn't the primary data, secondary data, was being rendered improperly. And it was because the underlying data structure was not being understood well. So what we learned is that our major client figured out, oh, these numbers aren't right. We really need them to be right. And I tried to explain, it's like, well, <laughs> you don't understand. We need to understand this data structure. It's not like, oh, they meant column B when they really need column C. This was, it, it has, you look into this column to find a link to that column, to find a link into this column, which gets you eventually to the number, unless this data point over here says one. Then you go somewhere else. And I'm sure somewhere there in there is something about a third Tuesday of the month type exception where you have to go somewhere completely different. But instead of <laughs> trying to understand it first and then write testing for it so that we could have a regret, a way of regressively testing everything and knowing what we were doing, they're like, no, 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 this is our biggest client. They need to know. And they would not accept, well, they've been working with bad data for two years. What's another month going to kill them? And so I lost that battle. I went ahead and I, I did the work to understand the data structure. And it did, it took about a month. And in that course of the month, we did four releases because we thought we knew how to fix it without testing. Well, actually, the testing was we could look at one data point and say, this data point's correct. Not thinking like, oh, we should test across the thousands and thousands of data points that we have. And instead of making the customer wait one month and then being able to implement the right thing, we implemented four things and looked like idiots. So again, this is, this all goes back to the, building for deprecation. It's not an intuitive thing. It's not, you know, it, it's not going to make things faster initially. Your customer is going to have to wait. But hopefully the idea is that when you 
get to the endpoint, you have something that now you can deploy with confidence, that you it can run with confidence. And hopefully, if you've done it right, it will tell you that it's breaking before your customer notices. And this is kind of where I, I come to uh, a, a stumbling block of where do I go next and kind of why this is more the conversation and not, not just me pontificating for 30 or 40 minutes is I feel like that's it and maybe it's too simple. And like I said, I, I feel like part of it is like killing the ego of the programmer where we need to learn that we aren't the end all be all, that what we're writing isn't the thing that's going to last for the next century. You know, if it lasts for the next year, we're lucky. But I'm, I'm beginning to wonder whether this needs to be like a two-person talk where we have like a business person talking with me who can talk about the product side of it and how the business needs to shape up and support the developers in what they're doing. So, I mean, and I can go into my thoughts of what how a business can support this idea for building for deprecation biz. But I, I just kind of wonder if you guys had thoughts get already or questions or or whether you think I'm just... So first off, a little clarification. So when you say deprecation, you don't mean that the software is scheduled to be removed from production, but you mean that it's no longer being maintained. Is that correct? Or by the idea is that eventually your software will go away. Eventually it will become go onto a deprecation path. You should just kind of build with that on the front end so that when it's time to do that, deprecating it is as easy as possible. But the biggest part of that is, okay. yeah, when I'm done with the software, I can deprecate myself out of it. I can hand it over to you. And you don't have to call me because it's monitored, it's tested. If something new comes up, you should be able to handle that. Now, if the world's on fire, please bring me back in. But the idea of building for deprecation is I'm not tying myself to this piece of code. I want this code to go away so I can go and take on new challenges, build new things, and help the teams after me so that they don't have to stop for six months to, to document things so that they can figure out what to do with this pile of code that I've delivered to their doorstep. The first thing that came to my mind when I when I heard that title, you know, code or, or develop for deprecation was a, a similar, but I think it's actually quite different, actually, but a similar sort of a phrase that I've heard many times, which is write code that's easy to delete. But but you're not talking specifically or, or not only about deletion. You're talking about a broader sense of, of deprecation and everything that leads up to, to, to potentially including that deletion, but everything up, up before that, too. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. And it, it's kind of the, to be graphic, if I go out and I get hit by the bus, is someone able to pick up the code from where I've left it and continue on without disrupting the customer? You know, I think um, GitHub did a study on this topic, and I think they might have called it, it was something like, you know, like how many people can get hit by a bus before like your code repository goes to die. And that was kind of the idea with that of how do we support the code not just in code, you know, like continuous integration and unit tests and all these kind of fancy things that we want to be doing, but also like people, there need to be people behind the scenes pushing whatever agenda it is you have, whether it's code or a business case or just whatever is happening there. Somebody needs to be there to push it forward. Yeah. Until they don't, which I always think is a very interesting case because I think, you know, like as yeah, developers, we kind of. I definitely agree with your point that it's that not I'm, just code. And, but I speak code because that's the primary thing that I do, but I, and I think as as a broader, not group, but as a broader technology, that's definitely what we're doing. Like you mentioned CICD, it's uh, we, you know, we used to build hardware servers and they were all snowflakes. And now we have Docker where we can genericize that. So if it's, if the server is gone, we can rebuild it quickly and we don't have to remember, oh, we installed this here, but not there type thing. And these are the, the same ideas, building doing things in such a way that they're easily replicatable. And we aren't the the person that remembers this is the part of the snowflake that's important. 
important, if that makes sense. No, I think that absolutely makes sense. And I would even kind of take it a step further. Um, yeah, for sure. I think like a possible analogy that works that works here. So I wanted to, to point out, or, or it's probably obvious, it doesn't really need to be pointed out, but let's just talk about it. The concept that I think is very closely related that I, I've heard also mentioned several times uh, in, in various circles, that software is never, quote, done until it's until it's deleted or, or removed from production. And I think, you know, part of your 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 preamble there was, I think, talking about that concept. I guess what you're trying to do is is maybe build a, a mental framework to manage this problem in a simpler way. Is, is that is that a fair statement? Is that is that kind of what you're trying to grapple with? Yes, definitely. It, instead of trying to think of, oh, we do TDD, BDD, whatever DD, and it, we should be in the, fr- in the framework of how do I write this so that I can, yeah, I can move on to the next stage or we can do the next thing, whether simply we're moving to a different language, new technology. It's normally the new technology thing that bites us in the butt. It's, it may be the best piece of software for like a REST API, but now we're moving on to streaming and those work very differently. You have to think differently. So you're not going to try, you may try to adapt a piece of code for it, but in reality, you're probably going to write a new piece that is fully invested into this new idea of we're uh, we're getting information pushed to us rather than we're pulling it via REST calls, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it basically setting it up so that at any point, for any reason, we can either move on, whether moving on means I'm moving away from the product and someone else is taking over with over it to... We are moving on because we're going to replace this product with a new one that's going to do it in the new way that we've decided to go. So what steps would you take? Suppose you're building a REST API and you know that you want to build it for deprecation so that you can replace it with a streaming API in two or three years. What steps would you take as a developer to make that possible? I mean... You're, let's assume you're doing TDD and BDD and you're following solid mm-hmm. principles and all those fun things. What would you do differently with this deprecation in mind? Well, basically make sure that I fight for those so that when I get the, the new feature, let, uh, or let's just talk about feature wise. If I get the new feature from mm-hmm. the business or from a product person that I fight to say, no, I can't, even though the code is done, I still need to write the testing for it. And I need to write intelligent monitoring for it. And of course, these, both of those assume that you have a testing framework or CI CD pipeline already set up that you can plug into and a, uh, a monitoring framework. And actually, I, I can't believe I forgot that's along with monitoring is basically logging that you're doing intelligent logging right. and it's done in a centralized place that you can see a flow over multiple products. And so those two, and then also the documentation, all of these are things that really have no impact on the time of writing the code itself. They're all extra. And you uh, basically need to persuade the, the company, the business, that the extra time is worth it. In fact, I would almost say that, I mean, people think, oh, it's just testing. It must do, you can just slap that on. It's like testing is actually harder than writing the code, I think. So I, I think if it takes you a day to write the code, you better have two days for testing. And then hopefully in, in when you're writing the code, you have the simple things where you can just, you know, how is logging done? What's the, you know, and you can just log the pertinent information. And then ideally from that logging, you get your monitoring kind of for free. But again, these are all things that have to exist and be part of that. And like, you know, we do agile and we do lean and we try to be all these cool acronyms. But normally when we, 
size work as coders, uh, it's normally the time it takes to get the code done and we forget everything else because we're thinking, oh, I just need to get the functionality done, not, oh, I'm building to deprecate this functionality, meaning I need to document it. I need to make sure that the document fits in with the current documentation and it is tested. And if this function breaks, I'm going to know before the client knows. So that's kind of what I'm thinking. That's where I want that the mindset to be. A lot of what I think you're saying, like the things that are coming into my head are are just like, well, yeah, you have to learn to do that. You have to learn to write your... One reason that TDD is valuable is because you have your tests written before you write your code. You don't have to go back later and do that. And you know, One of many potential reasons is valuable. And part of it's maybe just being a professional developer and not, not stopping before you're done and communicating effectively with stakeholders that no, it's not done yet just because I have the code written. You know, I need to do the testing. I need to do integration. I need to set up logging. There's all these things. And you've, you've listed a bucket list of them. And, and they're all the things that we've been learning in, in extreme programming and, and in uh, Agile at large, uh, including Scrum and, and all the other Agile frameworks and, and Lean programming. I don't know where that leaves us. Like, I'm not sure. I, I guess I'm wondering, can this be distilled further or is it really as, as, complicated as as it seems i don't know no i uh, i agree with you and i think that's part of like i believe that's how we got here is that i was talking about this and it was like we just need to get in the room and talk with a bigger group it does feel complicated and simple all at the same time i feel like we have all the answers yet we still write code that someone needs to stop and do documentation on or someone needs to write testing for. And I mean, I, I definitely have anecdotal horror stories of we've made a change and everything looked great. And then, oh, this group over here was relying on that undocumented, fe- undocumented feature. And now they're completely offline. And oh, they didn't know they were offline until a customer called and told them that they were offline. And it, it's like, I, it's like trying to figure, I feel like if we can distill it down, maybe we can stop writing bad code. But until then, I, I think we just have to build better mental models. And that's where I'm hoping to go with this build for deprecation mental model. I think a big part of this isn't the code's fault. It's the human aspect of things. Yes. Uh, you know, there's, there's a communication, especially when we talk about cross-team dependencies and we change something that you depended on we didn't know and you didn't know, you know, all these sorts of things. I, I always, I, I always like to say that that technology is the easy part of this job. It's the, it's the people that make it complicated. Yes. And that's I, not an answer. It doesn't get us no, anywhere, but no, but I, I think may, maybe it, it kind of does because like, like I said, only in the last year or two of 20 plus years of programming, have I started thinking like, Oh, I need to learn how to talk like a business person or like a product person so that I can communicate to them effectively. Because when I started talking to one two years ago, and they're like, well, why do, I, why do I need to do this? And my answer was, I'm an engineer. It's because I said so. And realizing that... <laughs> right. it, they don't like that. They, they don't like that at all. <laughs> I don't understand why. I'm an engineer. No, um, exactly. And so maybe it is, is, uh, it is definitely more... This is a human problem, definitely, in, in that we have great tools and they're getting better every day. But somehow we seem to be really... Mess, messing code up with those tools. We're just doing things faster. It, 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 you know, like the Facebook thing, you know, move fast and break things. It's like, well, that's great. But how about we build something that we can pass on and, you know, we're not freaking out about. I think part of the problem may be that we have such a, a wide variety of skill sets when it comes to software development. We, we have people 
I'm going to over over generalize here, but we have people who have been out of a boot camp for three months, sitting next to somebody like you or me who've been programming for 25 years, and we're more or less peers. I mean, there's a seniority scale that goes on here, and you know, we expect that they're going to ask more questions, but they're pushing code to production same as we are, and they're not testing things completely or whatever. And I don't want to blame the, the juniors you know, in the room. That's not my point. My point is, though, that if you go to other industries, I mean, if you go to, let's say, the plumbing industry, <laughs> you don't find a big mix of plumbers, some who forget to flush the toilet after they install it to see if it works. And then they go home and then you, you, you go flush the toilet and the water is all over your bathroom. That never happens in the plumbing industry. Why does that happen in IT? And I, I think part of it's just because there's this huge variety of skill sets and and there's, there's no certification. And, and by the way, I'm not, I'm not advocating that we need certification. I don't think that's the solution to this. Uh, I don't think we need to, you know, have the government get involved in who should be a programmer and who, who can't. That's not my point. <laughs> but b- because there's such a low barrier to entry into this industry, I think it does mean that we're going to have a lot of people who come, maybe they learned in their basement. Maybe they went to a, maybe they went to university or boot camp. Maybe it was a good one. Maybe it was a bad one. Whatever they didn't learn all the things that we that you and I can agree are essential to make good software. They didn't learn TDD. They didn't learn to do good monitoring and, and logging. There's all whatever whatever things we agree on that that are essential. These people didn't all learn that. And and even those of us who've been in the industry for ten or fifteen years, sometimes we disagree on what's essential. Or maybe you're really aware of logging as an important thing and. To me, it's always an afterthought or, or vice versa or whatever, you know, so that it's, it's, there's not any sort of consistency in our industry about what good software even looks like in the first place or how we should how we should get there. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if this contributes to anything or not. It's just some thoughts I have. I guess that's what we're, we're doing here. Brainstorming, right? Yeah. And I, I definitely agree with that. And I think sometimes it can also be like you have the junior, but the senior isn't willing to share because the senior I have met coders who are like, this is my thiefdom. I don't want to grow out of this code base where I'm always, you know, I, I want to move on to the next problem. I want to solve the next problem. And yeah, how do we do that efficiently? And you're right. Everyone does seem to have different thoughts of it, but I, I'd rather have different thoughts of, well, I feel like we should be logging these things versus these things, but at least we're both logging and maybe, you know, maybe we could do be, be doing it better, but at least we're doing it. And I mean, there's also, you know, depending on the scale of the system, some things log well in a small system. But if you try to do that in a high performant, uh, very busy system, you're just going to crash your logging software or make it so full that it's not even useful anymore. Or even more, and this is something I haven't even uh, touched on, is you have so many components. Let's say they're all logging fantastically, but how do you track what, when a you know user clicks over here to all the way to your upstream service and then back again, and, and I know that there are ways of doing that, but I mean, has the has the company thought of that? And I guess it's like, how do we build a mental framework that? And again, why I started with the idea of build for deprecation is like, well, if you think about that, what does that mean for what I'm doing right now? Hopefully, it leads you into these questions rather than we're going to build all this stuff and then afterwards realize, oh, God, we built all this stuff. What do we do now type thing? So I, I think, and Jonathan, like you said, it is until we can figure out how to distill it further down. And maybe this is where the plumbing, the plumbing, not department, but world has got it right. It's like, well, they figured, well, we're doing these things. That means here's the checklist of what you need to do when you're done. And we realize that there are real world, immediate real world consequences to, did you pressure test the system? Well, if you didn't, how do you know that you actually glued every joint? And in the software world, we haven't come to that yet. We have 
checklists, but it's easy to say, well, it doesn't matter because no one's ever going to run into that. And maybe if you, if you, the code is in a low volume environment, you may never run into that. But if you work in an environment where everything is constantly being hit, it's more a matter of when, not if, but it's hard to convince some people. And I am lame. And I, you know, listening to myself now, I definitely am laying a lot of the blame on the business. It's like, this is business fault. They don't want to give me the time. But in, in reality, it's like, I'm also lazy. I don't really want to take the time, but you know, how, yeah, how do we without? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm not into mandating any type of certifications, but it is, we do need to figure out some type of easy framework that we can keep in mind so that we can build robust systems that can hold up to what they're designed to be. And when we figure out that we either need a new technology or the, uh, the constraints on it are increasing, we can either scale that up or replace it with something that can't. And without having the documentation, the testing, the monitoring, and I'm sure I wrote this down. So, uh, any, without having all those things, then every time we are reinventing that wheel, we're not taking the wheel and simply building it in the new way, you know, with rubber instead of stone this time, but you know, we're, we're doing a full scale reinvent. So how you, and that, that's where I'm trying to go with this. And, and uh, all the, the questions and thoughts that have been really helpful in the sense that it's giving me a lot of different ways of thinking at this. And hopefully I can craft it into a better talk when I'm done. So folks, I'm here with JD from Raygun. JD, you guys get like a billion errors a month. Uh, what what are some of the more interesting errors that you've seen over the years? Oh, that's that's a good question. We certainly deal with a lot of errors. Um, a couple of things uh, come to mind. Um, when we very first launched and we kind of expected, you know, we'd see some people sign up and try it. We actually got one of the uh, top 10 Facebook games. Remember when they were huge? Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and so they, one of the top 10 Facebook games, and it was, between us, one of the most buggy bits of software I've ever seen. And so it oh, managed man. to completely blow us off the internet in like our first week of launching. Um, so we, we solved That's that why I couldn't win at poker. <laughs> <laughs> Those Farmville animals, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and there was another, uh, another one always sticks in my mind because obviously we, we track JavaScript and just like with mobile era crash reporting, you know, you can't access the end user's browser console to see errors. So you really want to track that and report it. Right. And um, I remember this one customer and uh, they um, had this really fancy animation on the, on the cursor on their website. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, their JavaScript to do that, uh, they deployed a bug with it, which meant that on every single mouse move event of every <laughs> single customer they had would send a, uh, an error report to Raygun. Um, so, it, you know, working at Raygun is like dealing with a constant distributed denial of service attack and uh, doing it with style. So, so if you want to know what kinds of interesting things are going on that you're not seeing in your app, you ought to check out Raygun. Um, the, they're doing a free trial right now. You can get it at raygun.com. So, I mean, I, I could easily see a, a, a checklist or a, or a guide or an official manual or unofficial manual, really. Of here are the things you should do for for your code to be done. You know, we could call it an analogy to a plumbing certification or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you if you do these things, then we then you're, you're writing more or less good software. It's, it's not going to guarantee that it performs perfectly all the time, or you know, just like you can't guarantee that every plumber is going to have the optimal solution. Maybe somebody runs the pipe in a, a suboptimal way or whatever. So those details is is not really what we're talking about. We're talking about does the toilet flush without flooding the floor. <laughs> could probably get that level of guidelines written. I'm, I'm sure they do exist somewhere. The, the problem then, though, and, and so, so two, two problems I see with this. One, it's probably a long list. 
And it probably requires a year or two of training to more or less memorize the list. You know, I, I've, I probably, I could probably spend a while and come up with that list that I've learned over my career. If I had, if I had that list 20 years ago when I started, I would have learned it a lot faster. I've learned it slowly over, over decades, as, as I think we all have. Uh, so maybe that sort of list could exist, but it would be long. And second, what would we do with it after we had it? I mean, I, I guess we could invent a, a certification program and say, if, if you take a test and prove that you learned this stuff, you could get certified and it could be like, so now you're Scrum certified uh, for your Scrum masters and you get certified for this for your, your developers or something. Oh, by the way, I know Scrum does have a developer certification. I don't think it's as detailed as we're talking about here, but maybe that's one way it would go. I don't know. I, I really don't like certifications in software development because I feel like they're usually worthless, but maybe this would be a different one. Maybe we could invent one that, that wasn't worthless. Mm -hmm. Supposing we could, would this answer what you're looking for or, or does it feel like it's the wrong wrong angle? Well, of course it answers what I'm looking for because I'm an engineer. I'm right. No, I, <laughs> I, I think at least it gets us in the ballpark. And the idea really is... And I, I think that will be the challenge to every operations person, DevOps person, sole programming person is like, it, are, are you writing something or are you creating something that if you went away, can you walk away from this? Can you go on vacation without getting called up? And if, if the answer is yes, then, then I think we've been successful. So I, again, like I'm the coder. So I'm thinking of coding. Tim, coding then will be, you've documented the, what it needs to do. You're you've written the code, obviously. You've tested it. It's being monitored, and it can be deployed. And I can walk away, and someone can pick it up. I, I would think at least that's the basic building blocks. And I think each one of those points then becomes a whole mess in itself. Like, I mean, our I, I've worked at a company where at first they were like, everyone is going to build it using this framework, and we are, you know, and of course because it's this framework, you have to use Java, yay. And then, but you're gonna you're gonna log to Splunk. Your monitoring is done via Splunk. Your alerting is done via Splunk. And that was nice. It was a little bit constrained. We had other issues with it. But then they decided they went the exact opposite direction. Now everyone's up to themselves. Every team got to build their own elk stack. Every team got to figure out how much space do I need for my elk stack? And it's like, do you really? So it, it, it's like each one of those points can have its own discussions, which can go on. And those, I think that's where the complication comes from. But I think is if we at least have the top level checklist then that gives us all a common ground of where we go for and then a, a company or even a division can make their own decisions on those uh, on those points or am i oversimplifying do you think so i want to jump in here real quick because sure. i work with a bunch of startups and, and have over the course of my career so I've, I've talked with the business people a lot and you're i think you're 100 right in that this is a mental model shift and I think one of the reasons it's actually getting highlighted is because of the different types of people who become engineers and the different types of people who become business people. Like, you know, there's the joke I'm sure you've heard where uh, the wife asks the husband who's an engineer to go to the store and get was like get bread, milk. And if they have eggs, get 12. And he comes home with 12 gallons of milk. She's like, why did you do that? And he says, because they had eggs. And I think that kind of highlights part of the underlying problem here. Like we're engineers, we're very literal. And so whenever the business comes to us and says, hey, build this feature, we build exactly what they ask for. And we think of logging and monitoring and testing 
as additions to that feature. You know, they're separate from the feature. They work with the feature, but they're separate things to do. But from a business person's perspective, the ones that I've dealt with, they kind of assume that that's all in one bundle. So when they ask for a feature, they are assuming that they get all of that auxiliary stuff that they don't know what it is, but they get it sort of like if you went to the um, hospital to have your appendix removed and you wake up from surgery and there's this big hole in your stomach. And you're like, why is there a hole there? And the surgeon says, well, because you told me to remove your p- appendix. You didn't say anything about closing <laughs> everything up when I'm done. You know, and I think that it, I think that's part of the miscommunication between engineering and the business is we both are talking about the same thing, but we both have different assumptions about the specific details of what we're talking about. I think that gets back to the different experience levels and and seniority levels we have in the industry. Because there are engineers who you say, I want a a new login button or whatever, and they're going to build the login button. They're going to do TDD. They're going to give you the monitoring and the alerting and the logging along with that login button. And you're going to know exactly who logs in when. You're going to have the audit log and everything you might want. There are engineers who will do that. There are also engineers who are going to go, oh, yeah, that's a 10-minute job. I'm going to go create a login button. Boom. And, you know... Oh, you didn't tell me you wanted to connect it to, to Auth0. You didn't, you didn't tell me that the password should be encrypted when we send that over the, the wire. You know, not, nothing <laughs> like that. You know, you're going to get both extremes. Yeah. <laughs> totally. You don't get those extremes with your plumbers. You don't call a plumber and one of them comes like, Oh, you wanted a toilet. You didn't tell me you wanted me to patch the hole in the wall after I put the toilet in. You didn't tell me the toilet should flush. You didn't tell me the toilet needed to have water supply. You, you don't get that with plumbers because there's, there's a baseline of, of professionalism or, uh, you know, you still might get plumbers who cheat, but there, there's there's a baseline. And we don't have that baseline here in, in our industry. Agreed. And I think on that note, uh, you know, other industries have much more of an apprenticeship model where it's kind of understood that junior people need to be kind of babysat, I suppose, for lack of a better term. And that's not an insult. Somebody totally should have been babysitting me when I first started out. Okay, I don't know why people just let me lose on. Totally agree. You know, the HPC systems. I look back and that just seems like such a terrible <laughs> plan. But, you know, for the most part, and then I also think that kind of leads to the disconnect between junior developers and senior developers. I see a lot of junior developers that get thrown into like a situation that's just way over their head, quite often through no fault of their own. It's just a, you don't know what you don't know, kind of crash and burn and move into other industries but like other you know other industries don't have that plumbers there's an apprenticeship doctors lawyers like would you ever let a junior you know somebody like just out of medical school operate on you with no uh with no oversight like of course you wouldn't because other you know maybe that's that's a bit um that's a bit drama queen territory to be like well, doctors, yeah because with, with current healthcare prices <laughs> i'd probably have that conversation yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey i might too but 50 I bucks under the table deal yeah. <laughs> well what you know like it's the only appendix like, what the could go wrong anyway things, used to do all the dental work and things and uh i just had to pay for a whole bunch of dental work and i'm thinking you know what maybe that should have been the way to go but, uh, <laughs> on kind of a related note to that though mm-hmm. i've worked with a lot of guys or a lot of people rather from south africa and in south africa they do have an apprenticeship system for software engineers it's not nearly in like tech in general it's not nearly so common or it didn't used to be to go to college for for different technologies. So I worked at a university once where they had a policy that everybody had to have at least a bachelor's degree, except for the people from South Africa. They were okay. And it was because <laughs> in South Africa they had this apprenticeship model. 
which I always just found to be like really, really interesting because from like a people perspective, they were also the best to work with. Like the, you know, like from like communication and talking and learning and all this kind of stuff, you know, maybe they weren't out there building TensorFlow, but we could go and like build stuff mm-hmm. and it was fine. Yeah. So I think there's two interesting dynamics that make our industry different from plumbing and doctors. One is even though we write a lot of really crappy software, we're making money. And I don't mean our salaries. I mean the, the, the companies that we're writing software for, they're, they're successful by and large. There are exceptions, of course. Some companies fail. But by and large, that crappy software is serving its purpose. It is getting, you know, it's, it's increasing the bottom line of the companies using the crappy software in most cases. So there's not a huge incentive for these companies to hire, say, seniors with 15 years experience instead of the juniors with three months experience because those juniors are getting the job done. So that, that's, that's one big difference. Uh, you know, if we had, if we had the same situation with plumbers, nobody would hire junior plumbers who forgot to flush the toilet first. You know, that just wouldn't happen. They would, all, they would always be saying, I need a plumber with at least 15 years experience to come and sell my toilet. That's just how it would work. And that's not what we're seeing right now because those unflushable toilets are actually working in our, in our <laughs> metaphor. The, the, the second thing, the second thing is that this industry is, it's 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 a cliche, but it's a new industry, and and I don't mean new in this in the same way that like oh we don't know what we're doing yet. I, th- I think we do know what we're doing, but it's new in the sense that it's still growing rapidly. Uh, I, I think it was Uncle Bob Martin who did a, a fun talk uh, on YouTube somewhere where his his uh, one of his intros talks about how in in 1940s we had one computer programmer in the world. Same with Alan Turing, right? Five years later we had basically two. <laughs> And five years later, about four. And that number is basically doubled every five years since then. And it continues to double. It, it, it won't for another, it, it'll only do that for another five years or so. But basically, we have every five years double the number of software developers in the world that there were five years before, which means that at any, any given moment, if you have five years experience, you're at the median in terms of ex, uh, experience level, right? If you have 10 years of experience in software development, you are more experienced than 75% of the software developers out there and so on and so forth. There's no possible way that if our plumbing industry was growing that fast, we would have as many qualified plumbers as we need. <laughs> you know, if, if, if we had, if we had twice as many plumbers now, I don't care what the number of plumbers is right now. If we double that number in five years, we're going to have a lot of unexperienced crap plumbers working for us in five years time, just because they don't, there's not that much time to get them up to speed. So th- those are my two points on, on how our industry is different from these others. And I'd like to add on to that because I, I think that's a great point is because it's a newer industry and the initial people that were drawn into that industry seemed like we were primarily introverts. So now that we're seniors, we're still kind of introverted and we're not getting out of our shell to bring the juniors along. Uh, many years ago, as part of this very performative, wonderful, probably best team I was ever uh, part of, we had two juniors on our team. Problem is, we treated them like senior engineers, not realizing that they were drowning, but they were putting on a brave face. And we did them a huge disservice by not slowing down to teach them what they needed. By you know, and and one of them, I, I feel like I kind of stunted their 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 growth in the company because it wasn't promoted quick enough. Primarily because, well, we were expecting this junior to be doing senior level work, and guess what? He's a junior. And so I'm I'm hoping that as as our profession, as it's growing, as we're incorporating more people, that hopefully in, in like 20 years, we won't be having this conversation because a lot more people will be, a lot more seniors will be more out there doing like what we're trying to do. 
engaging people, talking about it, trying to bring everybody up in the group instead of just assuming, oh, you're doing, you look like you're doing a good job. I'm just going to keep going over here and doing my good job. And we'll all do a good job together. And in reality, yeah, some of them aren't as good as others. But I like the plumbing analogy. I, I think there's a lot of fun to be had there. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I use that one a lot when it comes to testing and people thinking that, oh, testing is someone else's job, you know. <laughs> if, if your plumber, if, if, if your plumber tells you I'm done, the tester will be here tomorrow. Get a new plumber. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best argument for DevOps I've ever heard. So, is, oh, it Julian, is it just South, it just South Africa that has the apprentice program, or are there other places that do that as well? I'm sure there are other places. That's just the one that I know because uh, I was so surprised when I found out that rule actually because I worked, yeah, I worked in a department in IT with quite a few people from South Africa. And then I like, I don't even remember how it came up, but it just came up that at least like half of them didn't have degrees and that the rules for it was a university. So, you know, university is a, a bit of an MLM scheme and they like for other people to also have degrees. And so like, you know, then it just came up that, oh, the, that's the rule, except for like in this particular case, because of this apprenticeship model. And I just always found it really, really fascinating. That is cool. I'll have to look into that. Yeah. And anyone listening to the podcast, if you're aware of other places that have apprenticeship programs like that. Give us a shout and let us know on uh, on Twitter at DevOps Podcast, or you can tag any of us individually. Yeah, I do also think uh, like within the industry, we need to have a big, you know, and I like this term mental model shift and think of it more as like an ethical responsibility. I don't know that I like the word ethical because that sort of brings to mind people going to jail for making honest mistakes. And like, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm not about that. That's not cool. <laughs> But, you know, this idea that if you start a project or if you're working on code, or data or whatever, that that code is supposed to be doing something. So let's say I have a job at a company and I'm building some code and it's supposed to, you know, have some feature. If I just leave one day and that whole thing crashes and burns, I would say ethically, I haven't really, you know, done my job to, or, you know, or maybe it was the company or like, whatever, let's not assign blame, but some somewhere like there was some responsibility to be had to make sure that this feature could live on and keep performing and doing, you know, whatever bot-like operations it was supposed to be doing. And then I leave or somebody else leaves and it can't. And where, like, where is kind of the responsibility of that? I don't think I've ever really worked Ooh. any place or had any kind of jobs where that was very, like, clear cut. Now, that's one thing that I really like about doing independent consulting is that I can say, like, you know, no, for myself, I'm always trying to code myself out of gigs. Which may or may not be the best business strategy, you guys. Like, I don't, I don't know if it is or not, but that's, you know, that's where we are. That's, uh, or at least that's well, where I am, and that's what I have going on. But that's always something that I try to do. Is all my clients like they, you know, they should be able to be like, all right, we're sick of this crazy lady. Like, moving on, and well, go to somebody else, and everything should be fine and keep working. Well, just because you've put it there and you're basically just monitoring it with one click every third day doesn't mean they need to know that. You could just say, hey. I'm putting in 40 hours here. <laughs> <laughs> but I like what you're saying about the, 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 the ethical responsibility. Yeah, exactly. But the ethical and the responsibility of it, again, like if you want to, a group took on this project and they said, oh, we're going to use Basil, uh, which is a build, a build, open source build project from Google. And really cool, really great ideas. They didn't understand it, nor did they take time to understand it. And they simply shoehorned their current CICD into something they said, ooh, it's now Basil. And it just did not work well. It was the, it was just the wrong way of doing it. And there it definitely, 
I feel like it definitely should have been a, a senior programmer's responsibility of that group to say, no, 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 you don't understand what you're doing here. You cannot release this. So I, I do think, and I agree, it, it doesn't mean that we should be going out and saying you were held, you're responsible for this and it didn't work. So we're taking the money back. Yeah. Nothing like that. But there, we, as programmers, we, and I think that's where the ethical part comes in. We need to hold ourselves accountable. It's like, we want to do this cool thing. We want to explore this new technology to realize that, oh, we don't understand this new technology. We can't actually, we shouldn't be doing this. I mean, let's explore it on the sidelines and maybe next year we can roll it out. But right now we shouldn't do that. And I don't feel that there is accountability in, in the field. Like you said, it's, and I, I think it's just more the burden, especially on us seniors to stand up and say, Hey, I can't let you put that out. You need to do this. And that may be an unpopular thing and you may get some nasty stares from, you know, the product people or even your manager. But it's, I, I feel like it's way too easy to say, Oh, Kind of like kind of like what Jonathan said. It works. It makes money. Who cares? Yeah, but you know, just to be contrarian, I do think there is a time and a place for the, uh, you know, let's just throw some spaghetti at the wall and see if it sticks. Especially <laughs> having worked in research, where that like that's all that we do. That is that is literally all that we do is we just throw things and we're like, well, you know, maybe maybe this will produce some results that will lead to some cool data that will then lead to a paper. So, in those instances, it's. Like in those types of environments, it's very, very common to just have a whole bunch of not well maintained code because nobody's really expecting to maintain it. But then, of course, every once in a while, some idea really does stick. And then you have to go back and like fix up the dumpster fire that was you know, the original <laughs> the original code base and methodology, which I, I don't think anybody has a good answer for that either. Like how to, you know, how to balance these. Is this going to be maintained forever or is it not? Mm-hmm. I think the important thing is to recognize when it's appropriate to cut corners and when it's necessary to do things the right way. And let's see if I can break our plumbing analogy here. Your plumber may run a garden hose through the house while he's working. Uh, Maybe it's not long enough and he patches it together. You know, he has three or four patches. Maybe some of those are duct tape because they kind of leak a little bit, but he knows it's a temporary solution. He's just doing something to get the job done right now. You know, if he left that temporary patched up duct tape hose in your living room after he left, like, yeah, that's, that's fine. Just use it like that. You would probably have a problem with him. <laughs> On the other hand, if, if, if this professional plumber knows that that's a temporary solution, it's just to get the job done right now and he cleans it up afterwards and there's no expectation that you're going to be living with this duct tape hose in your living room, it's probably fine. So, you know, I have no problem with people writing. You know, when, when I blog about rules or, or suggestions for here's the way to write code, you should always be GED, you should never use global variables and so on. There are always exceptions to those rules. And one of those is if you're writing a, a throwaway script that you're just trying to, you're just trying to grab some, some data out of an XML file or something, just do whatever you need to do to get it done. But there's no expectation that script's going to be around in 10 years. Uh, or that but it will else be. is ever going to see it. <laughs> Sometimes it is. Yeah. <laughs> see, so that's what happens. Funny story time. I was working on a system, oh geez, like 12 years ago, and I was explicitly told, listen, we just need something for like a couple months because then we're going to buy this whole fancy new system and it's going to do all the things. We're just waiting on like, you know, legal or procurement or whatever to finish it up. They are still using that system. It was it was in no way built to last for like twelve years. It's also in Perl and CGI, just so that you know, parts <laughs> of a bunch of spreadsheets and things. It is still there. So sometimes you can't even like believe the people, uh, you know, that should be telling you that whether or not this thing is going to live on forever. Th- and especially where, now that oh, this ahead. is where I really like the concept from XP from Extreme Programming, 
of evolutionary design. And uh, I had a, I was fortunate enough to get JB Rainsberger on my podcast a few months ago to talk about this. I'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to listen. But the, the basic idea is that you build what you need for the problem today. We, we've all heard the, 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 the term YAGNI, Y-A-N-G-I, you're not going to need it. This is kind of built on that concept. You know, build what you need for today, but build it in such a way that you could expand on it. So you, you have this script to parse XML data or whatever that's supposed to live for two months. Build it for today's problem, but make it so that when it's still there in six months, you can add that logging you need or, or whatever. Uh, and, you know, that's far, far, far easier said than done. It, it, it takes months or years of practice to, to, to build software that way. But it's a good concept uh, that, that I think uh, applies to this whole problem. Yeah, I think his name is Greg Wilson, and he has all these software carpentry kind of like talks and courses and workshops and things. And one of the really interesting concepts I think that he talks about is how do you even write good tests? Because we all know, right, like as software people, I could get decent testing coverage and not actually test anything that really matters, right? Like uh, maybe I shouldn't be admitting that live on the air. <laughs> maybe that should be edited out. But like, but we all know we could do it. Right. So even if you have whatever, you know, 90, 98 percent testing coverage, that doesn't mean you're testing for anything that's meaningful or anything that could really break. Because those, you know, figuring out how to test for those things is a difficult and complicated problem, especially when you get these very like distributed systems or systems that are very dynamic or dealing with data or any of these kind of things. So I think that's, you know, that's another hurdle that we all have to tackle. That's point. why I hate code coverage uh, as a as a metric. As a metric, yeah, yes. yeah, it and just I, makes I agree you want to be that. like, well, screw you guys. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't mind looking at the difference. Like, if you have a pull request, I like to know if my coverage has gone up or down, just so I know that I I have met my own expectations. That I, you know, I, I thought I wrote tests, did I forget to commit them or something like that? Mm-hmm. But I, I think tracking it on a on a repository basis is is more harmful than useful. Yeah, I, I think it's good for trends, not for specific goals. I don't. I agree. I, I don't think that that code coverage in particular should be a, a metric that the business should be trying to look at. But definitely not. Yeah. But I, I'm sure Jillian's the only person on this call who's done that, you know, write tests just to have tests and not actually cover anything. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. Totally. <laughs> no, in DevOps, I don't really get any testing coverage because I'm always testing the outcome of the thing, not the thing. <laughs> I, re- I really need to stop coming on the show, you guys. <laughs> so, like, if I install a Helm chart, I don't actually test that the, like, Helm install is, like, doing what it's doing. I just basically trust that it is doing that, which, again, may not be such a great idea. But I'll test that, like, the service is up and the pods are up and that, if, you know, that, like, I'll run a script against it to make sure the auto-scaling is going and write these, what I refer to as tests for dummies. We're like, you know, okay, this is what I think should have happened as a result of running this. And then here are the tests that prove that. So that's, there's no testing coverage in that. And I don't know of any way to actually like systematically test that that has been done besides just understanding the problem and going and looking at it and then saying like, oh yeah, okay. So you, you did test for mm-hmm. that thing that was supposed to happen or be installed or servers come up or whatever. I, I think that's how the TDD folks get away with saying that, oh, you don't need documentation. The tests will tell you what is documented because theoretically you should be testing what the problem set is. And I don't really don't want to read through anybody's tests or git commits to figure out what you're doing. I, I want a document that tells me that. But yeah, it sounds like we're, yeah, hopefully when I figure all this out and I release the talk, if it ever gets released, wherever it gets released, I will be able to answer all these questions and we will be better for it. 
I'm looking, looking forward, forward to, it. to it. Yeah. yeah let me know when, when you get it. I'll buy a ticket to the conference. <laughs> Excellent. Me too. I, this I think it's going to lead to like, you know, it almost feels like there's a, like in some professions, there's like, uh, like different boards or organizations that you can join that say, hey, as a member of this organization, I adhere to these standards. And this almost feels like it's going in that direction. Yeah. I mean, the, well, we have that a little bit in like data science. So to be mm-hmm. like HIPAA compliant, there's like a certain list of things that you need to have. And briefly, those are you can't have like your secrets just stored in plain text. They need to be encrypted. You need to be able to track like the life cycle of the data. You know, so yeah, no like BI on the server to open up your Postgres passwords file, things like that. You well, need to be able to continuous pass- deployment. <laughs> yeah, well, do it, right? like, I just hacked the hurl script on the server. Forget all those CI CD scripts. <laughs> it's there in a hidden div in the curl CGI. It's you know, it's it's right there in the code. So, so Jillian, do any of these things that you're talking about apply to an individual or is it for the product? Like can can a can an individual be HIPAA certified? Yeah, that's what I thought. Not not in the information kind of way. There there's another HIPAA certification that's like patient privacy. And if you work in anything okay. having to do with patient data, then you have to take it to make sure that you're not talking about people's but that that's more that's more like people saying like, oh, this person has cancer or something. You know, like like things like that. But the the HIPAA compliance for software is yeah, it's the it's the product. I, I think if a reputable organization would come up with some sort of voluntary certification along these lines, you know, about technical practices, I, I would be behind that. The problem is that, at least so far in the industry, the only certifications we have are mostly fluff and meaningless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I mean that like from, from like Scrum and Safe and, and to a lesser extent, uh, of course, AWS, you know, th- those are, I think, a little more tangible uh, certifications. So maybe Amazon <laughs> or, or, or one of those organizations can come up with a a professional software development certification that would mm-hmm. mean something. I, I don't know. Or what a DAO that's owned by the or by the members of the organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But isn't that kind of what an architect is supposed to be? Like if you're like a an architect, isn't that supposed to be the person? Like I don't know because I don't take any of these certifications. I, I think it depends like on. Amazing, I mean, I think you could have but, different levels. I mean, you could have just like a, a, a certification that says I know the basics of writing code that's complete and, and does logging and monitoring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't mean you can architect a system. It means you know how to write a login button that is complete. <laughs> but, but there that, are architect certifications. That's yeah, what, yeah. Oh, what, yeah, yeah. Are those? Right. Yeah, one of them is it's called TOGAF, the Open Group Architectural Framework. It'd be kind of like that version, but for software engineers, it'd be like an open group saying, here are best practices that we recommend, and we have our own certifications for it, but it would be an open group. It wouldn't be a come from down, you know, High upon down, right. something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like the idea of, of making an open group, especially if you don't have to pay for training. Like, if you can just demonstrate that you know the information because you learned it on your own, and you know, maybe you pay an administrative fee to get a certification, but I don't think you should spend twelve hundred bucks to to buy a piece of paper that says I sat in a class and and learned, and, you know, and saw diagrams about TDD. You know, that that's not mm-hmm. useful. Agreed. Which okay. is what the uh, the HIPAA and uh, PHI certifications are. Yeah. So great. I'm taking this from so talk has this been helpful? to an open group. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Congratulations. I, I, <laughs> you thought you were going to make it simpler, but it just got a lot bigger. <laughs> it did. Thank you so much. Making your problems more complicated. <laughs> hey, and when you have these, uh, maybe we could start like a nice consulting organization that's we just come in and audit stuff. Other industries have that, right? Like how to... 
<laughs> you know, so like if I had some kind of legal problem, how could I make sure that my lawyer was doing a good job? There some like there must be some governing. I don't know. Maybe attorneys is a bad profession to choose for a model. <laughs> but I, I like it. Well, someone needs to start the open group. It could be the four of us. And you can figure out a salary for that. All right. We, we have about two weeks before this episode airs to get the, the patents going and everything. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm always really surprised by the things that like people can get patents for. I've seen, I've seen, I don't want to call them out because I like the people, but I saw some recently that I was just like, wow. All right. That's interesting. Just have to be creative. Have we have we beat this horse? Should we go into picks or is there anything else to, to discuss? No, I I, I, I think um, for the conversation and the feedback. It's been amazing. Yeah. I have a lot of notes and I'll be re-listening to this. Great. Thanks <laughs> for coming on and talking to us about it. Thank you for having me. Who wants to start with their picks? Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. So I'll jump in first. You know, last week we were talking about uh, different DevOps frameworks and stuff. And we were talking about the CD, Amazon CDK and then Pulumi. I, th- I hope I'm saying that right. I think it's Pulumi. And I mentioned that I had read something about it, wasn't going to like it. And so anyway, to cut to the point here, I've spent the last week playing with Pulumi and I can't even begin to express how wrong I was about what I was going to think about this tool. It's just freaking amazing. Like, I'm, so I've only been using it a week. So there's still plenty of room to let me down, but just on the surface, you know, as far as I've gotten so far, I freaking love it. The thing that I like so much about it is it, the big problem I've had with DevOps is you typically have like your DevOps tools and your software engineer tools, and those are two different domains. And so whenever you try to get your software engineers to implement DevOps practices, it's kind of like going to a shoe store and buying a new pair of shoes. And then after the purchase is complete, the salesman says, yeah, head on down to the warehouse downtown and you can get them there. And it's like, no, I bought my new shoes. I want to wear my new sneakers out of the store right now. And I think Pulumi has really kind of bridged that because they have libraries for a lot of the popular languages that are in use now that allow you to define your infrastructure in the code base where the application itself lives. And so that's my pick for this week is Pulumi. What made you go with Pulumi over the AWS CDK? Because they're both they're both like code. They are. So the big problems I had with CDK, I spent uh, the week prior testing that. Um, first of all, I work with a lot of AWS clients. So my uh, AWS credentials and config file is pretty substantial, but with CDK, you can't tell it which profile to use. And I intentionally don't have a default profile so that I don't go and build, 
you know, 50 EC2 servers in the wrong customer's AWS environment. So I specifically don't have a default profile. And with CDK, there's no way that you can tell it, hey, just go and use this profile. And then the other one, um, what was the other issue you had? Oh, yeah, you can't deploy per stage. Like I have, uh, you know, a dev environment and then a staging environment and a production environment. I can't find any way to use a single CDK pipeline to say, hey, if somebody pushes to the branch called staging, deploy to the environment staging. And when they merge into main, that's when you deploy to uh, production that doesn't seem to have that capability, which I thought was a really big oversight. Oh, good to know. I'm going to be working with Pulumi on a new project. And so far, uh, so far, I like it. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Cool. Shall I go? Go for it. All right. So I have two picks this week. The first one, as many of you regular listeners know, I was traveling the last couple months and uh, I noticed that the webcam built into my laptop was really low quality. Uh, it's only 720p and it's grainy and not didn't work in low light. So while I was traveling, I bought a new webcam and I like it a lot. It's actually better than the one I'm using right now, which you can't see since this is a podcast. But um, <laughs> I, I've been using a Logitech 922, I think, and I recently upgraded then to a Razer. I think it's pronounced Kyo, K-I-Y-O, Razer Ki Pro. Uh, it does 1080p at 60 frames per second. It's a lot of wide wide angle lens, super sharp image. So I'm quite happy with it. And I got it for like half off. It's regularly 200 bucks. I got it for 90, 95 bucks on Amazon in the US. I don't know what the price is globally. So if you're in the market for a nice webcam, you could save a hundred bucks on that one, at least if you're in the US, if you act now. My other pick today, I just launched a new YouTube channel. It has an entire one video on it. It's called Boldly Go and it's a Golang related uh, (laughs) channel. I I have a number of Go related videos on my other channel i'll probably be moving into this channel but if you're interested in go if you do go or you want to learn go my channel might be good for you along with will's channel he talks about go quite a bit too on his devops for developers channel so um, if you aren't already a subscriber to that one you should definitely subscribe to that too check it out boldly go and devops for developers to learn about go those are my picks thanks all right, well, I'll go next. So uh, I also have two picks. The first one is going to be, I bought an elliptical like six months ago, and I noticed recently that all my back pain is gone because as it turns out, sitting at a desk and coding all day is really, really bad, and you should get up and you should take breaks, which I wasn't doing because we were under really serious lockdown for like, I don't know, like two years or something. Like our gym was closed. We could barely even leave the house. It was, uh, It was very, very bad on a number of things. And so I finally just gave up on the whole gym concept, bought an elliptical, threw it in my office. And I try to get up like at least like every other hour and, you know, get on it for like 10 or 15 minutes. And I really have found, you know, all these kind of back problems and especially like neck pain that I thought that was just sort of having to get because I was getting older pretty much went away. So it wasn't a getting older. It wasn't I needed to get up and move around problem. It was a me problem. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Uh, so that's it. So, you know, if you're like, uh, if you're not commuting, I don't, I don't know how this would apply to people in an office because I, I was having a really tough time with this when I still work like, uh, in like somebody else's office, not in my own office. But if you have your own office, like go for it, get yoga mats, get an elliptical, get all the things. It was a little bit expensive at first to set up, but I'm telling myself that it's cheaper than physical therapy. And that's also the line that I'm using with my husband. So if you need to convince <laughs> a spouse of such an expense too. It, like it might work on them. I don't, I don't know. You can try it. And then my other pick for the week is I found a new sales newsletter 
which I'm always really, really excited <laughs> about. This one is called BookBub. And what you do is you go and you sign up and you put in like all the different kinds of books that you like to read into it. And then it will send you a newsletter of when those types of books go on sale. I don't know if this is going to be really awesome or really terrible. We're going to have to look <laughs> at my credit card bill at the end of the month. But it's, so far, it's really great. You're going to have to report on a weekly basis. You're going to have to report on a weekly basis on how large your two read like base chart. books are. How many? It's getting exponentially. I think that's really <laughs> that curve is going. Like it's, it's just going like this. Like you know. But I've also read a lot too, which is fun because yeah, I like to read. So that's nice. Great. All right. I only have one. Richard Eric, you got anything for us? Yeah, I have one because I was only told to have one. So mine is <laughs> oxide. We were <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow. How long do we have? Is there a time limit? No. Uh, Z oxide, <laughs> which on the command prompt, I've been using Z. And if you have not been using Z, it is a CD replacement. And basically, after you've installed it, it starts memorizing what folders you go into. And eventually you can just type in Z. And any portion portion of it, and your uh, whatever it finds by the number of times you go into those folders, the first one it will return that, and that works great. Except for when you're trying to go into something that has a common name, like a config repository, and you have X number that are called config. So a coworker of mine turned me onto this called Z Oxide, and it is the Z command written in Rust, and uh, it has ZI, which means it's a fuzzy finding. So you type in ZI, and then the name. And if it finds more than one, it will open it up in this really nice little command uh, on in the terminal like GUI, and it will show you the directories that match it and a little pop-up of what's in those directories. So you can go, if you, if you meant to, oh, you always go to the dev uh, config directory, but you want to go to the prod one, then you just, you know, use the cursor to go to the right one. And I'm telling you, I don't have to remember where I put stuff anymore. I just remember, oh, it has ticket in the name. So I just do ZI ticket and boom, I can go right to the, you know, if, if, I, if there's only one, it goes right there. If there's more than one, it pulls up the little pop-up. has a lot more bells and whistles, but that's all I use it for. So uh, Z oxide, it's the Z command written in Rust. Nice. Awesome. I'll have to check it out. I'm already looking at the GitHub repo. About it. <laughs> that does sound really neat. Oh, it's, yeah, it's made life so much easier. It just, I, I don't even, I don't even really use the mouse anymore. I just open up the terminal, I jump into it, and then open up like Visual Studio Code by doing code dot and don't have to, my hands never have to leave my keyboard. That's a beautiful thing. Yes. All right. Well, I think that makes this a wrap. It's been a fun conversation. Thanks again, Eric, for coming on. Thanks everybody for your picks. Let us know when the talk is being presented and we'll all be there. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Until next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to Adventures in DevOps. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.